First Kings eight, and uh, as I as I said before, and we're going through the Book of First Kings, by the way. First Kings chapter eight can be viewed in terms of a study uh, in theology proper. What's that? That's the study of the person and work of God. And this whole chapter can be looked at in that in that light. The whole chapter is a testament to the greatness of God. Everywhere you look throughout this chapter, we've already spoken of God's presence. That was the first point. God's presence in this chapter. As symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, put the Ark of the Covenant in the new temple that was built, and that symbolized God's presence. We've already spoken of the glory of God, His glory that's so amazing, it had to be symbolized in the form of a cloud. Talked about that last time. Tonight we're going to continue the theme of God's greatness in chapter 8 of 1 Kings by talking about, by looking at His faithfulness, God's faithfulness, and also His uniqueness. First of all, let's look at the faithfulness of God, that's in verses 14 to 21. Stephen read that for us already, and I want you to know that this chapter concerns, the, the context of the chapter concerns the dedication of the temple. Solomon has built the temple, built the palace complex, he's dedicating the temple to God. The Ark of the Covenant has been moved into place, uh, and now Solomon is going to address the people. That's verses 14 to 21, he addresses the people, look at verse 14. Then the king faced about and t- blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, it says he blessed all the, the assembly of Israel in verse 14. How does it, exactly does he bless them? How, how does it, why does it say he blessed them? You know, you've all heard of, uh, for example, uh, people, religious leaders, blessing people. They offer a blessing to people like the Pope, for example, blesses people, blesses Roman Catholics, supposedly. I think he holds up his hands. You know, he's got this unique way of holding his hands. I don't know if anybody can imitate that. He does that, and he says something in Latin, maybe, whatever he says. And it sounds very spiritual. Apparently, a blessing of some sort has been administered to people. Sounds very spiritual. Looks very spiritual. You know, with his robes on and, and religious, religious regalia and all this. Um, however, there's a difference between Solomon's blessing and papal blessings, or blessings of the religions of the world. Verse 15 describes exactly how Solomon blesses the people. Verse 15 says, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand. And he goes on and talks about the faithfulness of God. Solomon blessed the people by blessing the Lord. That's how he did it. He blessed the people by blessing and praising the Lord and speaking of his faithfulness. And you know, if you want people to be blessed in the church, you have to talk about the things of God. You have to talk about the Lord. You have to talk about his greatness. You have to preach the word and exalt the Lord. And what does the word do? It exalts the Lord, right? And as you do that, what's happening in the process? People are being blessed as the Lord is being exalted, as he's being lifted up. People are being blessed. And so a lot of times after a sermon, not mine, but after sermons, people say that was a blessing to hear that. And so people, that's the, that's the only way I know you can bless anyone, by blessing the Lord. I have no innate ability within myself to bless someone to hold up my hand somehow, some interesting way, and say something. sounds very religious and someone's blessed. A Roman Catholic priest cannot administer a blessing because of his position in the Roman Catholic Church. Those guys don't even have the right gospel, first of all. They don't have the gospel at all, as a matter of fact, not the biblical one. We bless people when we, when we relate to them what the Lord has done. When we do that, we talk about the Lord, his greatness, his faithfulness, then people are blessed by that. That's what Solomon's doing here. Now, there is an actual blessing in the Bible. Turn to Numbers chapter 6. 
There is an actual blessing the Lord instructed the priest of Israel in the Old Testament to to, uh, bestow upon people. This was not a Roman Catholic thing. This is the priest in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, you shall say to them. See that? Bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. How did the Old Testament priests bless the sons of Israel? They did it by invoking the name of God on the people's behalf. So when we bless the Lord by uh, talking about the things of God uh, to to people, then in turn we bless the people. And that's what Solomon is doing here. That's why it's such a blessing, by the way, to be under the preaching and teaching of the word of God. You have the opportunity to receive a blessing by hearing his word preached. And, and uh, the Lord is blessed and praised when we do this. Now, there's many in the world today who don't have the opportunity to sit under the gospel preaching under the word of God. They don't have that opportunity because either they're in a place where uh, there's no church somewhere in the world. In fact, my son right now in North Florida is having a hard time finding a decent church to go to in, the, in America. Uh, and maybe you can't find a church to go to, and, you, and so you, don't, you miss out on the blessing of God's word. Or uh, maybe uh, you have churches abounding everywhere, and yet no one is really preaching the word of God. That's the other problem. And so it's a blessing to sit under the preaching of the word of God. Solomon blessed the people by blessing the Lord. Now, how, does, how else can we really bless the Lord? How, how can we do it? Uh, we can only do it by blessing God. Or bless, how can we bless the people? We can only do it by blessing God. You know, that's why we love to read passages like Ephesians 1.3 and following all those verses. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, we like to read those verses. Why? Because we see how God has blessed people and how he's blessed us immensely. And then we tell that to people in our churches, and, and they're in turn blessed. Romans 11.35 Ask the question, who is first given to him? Who, what person is first given to God that it might be repaid back to that person? No one's initiated anything. God is the initiator. God is the one who blesses. God is the one who is uh, the giver. And so uh, how do we bless him? I mean, we think in terms of, of God blessing us. How do we bless him? We bless him by giving him our worship. That's all we can do, really. Our praise, our thanksgiving. Now, what is the actual content of Solomon's blessing uh, to, the, to both the Lord and the people. Well, in this section, he tells them of the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, and he shows how God has been faithful, how God has shown his faithfulness to Israel in many ways, but here's a few. First of all, the Lord has showed his faithfulness in the Exodus. That's verse 15 and 16. He's shown his faithfulness in the Exodus. It says in verse 15, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, has fulfilled with his hand, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. The first thing he does is mention the exodus from Egypt. You know what? The Bible never tires of referring to this incident. Again and again and again in the Old Testament you see this, talking about going back to the exodus in Israel. Now, it's only mentioned in passing here. It's not even the main point of this section. He's not even... This is not the main point of what he's talking about here, but he mentions it uh, briefly, and in this brief reference, we can see that God is faithful, just by the very mention of the Exodus. We think back about that. 
And we think to ourselves, wow, God showed his faithfulness in that time. You remember back there, the Lord told Moses and Aaron, look, I'm going to bring my people out of Israel, out of, out of Egypt, brother. They're slaves in Egypt. I'm going to, I'm going to send you guys to go and, and talk to Pharaoh, and you're going to talk to him, and I'm going to bring my people out. He said it several times prior to the event. He says it in Exodus 3:17. he said to Moses, God said to Moses, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. He said he would do it. He said it repeatedly. He said it prior to the event, prior to its happening. And what, what happened? He fulfilled his word. That's only a passing reference. But still, in that brief reference, we remember that the Lord is faithful. How can we forget it as we look back to the Exodus? Secondly, the Lord showed his faithfulness in choosing David. Verse 16, the last part of the verse. He says, I chose David to be over my people Israel. I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, that's not even the main point yet. That's another brief reminder of the Lord's faithfulness. He says, I chose David to be, to what? To be over my people Israel, to lead them, to guide them. Now, there's only one person who knows exactly where to put people, place people in his kingdom and, and his work and his vineyard. And who is that person? It's the Lord. He's the only one that knows where to put people in, in, in the world and have them serve him. He's the only one who knows who will benefit who it is that will benefit the people most in a ministry. He knows that. And in this case, he knew that that man was David. David uh, was qualified in his eyes to do a particular job. That job was to shepherd the people of Israel. The Lord knew that. How did the Lord know this? Because he himself had prepared David all his life. He prepared David all his life. And so when the time was right, and it took David a long time of going through many trials before he was put in that position. Uh, when the time was right, God said, this is the time, and he put him in that position of leadership. Why? Because God wanted the people of Israel to have a man after his own heart ruling them. You remember the people originally wanted Solomon, or not Solomon, but Saul to rule them. It was a man after the people's heart. And God said after that, no, I want a man after my heart. This is David. That's what they would need. Look at, look at David's heart for God, verse 17. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Uh, This is the heart we want. This is the kind of heart that God's people should desire, one that wants to do something for the Lord, right? One that wants to live for him, one that wants to glorify him. No selfish motivation here. He simply wanted to build a house for the Lord. This is the house, the, the heart we want. This is the heart that David had, and God said, this is the man I want to lead my people. Why? He's got this heart for me. As we look into the heart of David, we are also looking into the heart of a faithful God because he chose David knowing that this is the man for my people, and he wanted his people to be blessed by David, this particular man, to shepherd his people. David's not far from the perfect man. We saw that as we went through First and Second Samuel. We saw that. Nevertheless, this is the man that God chose to lead them, because he knew that David would care for them and shepherd them, and he did. So the Lord showed his faithfulness in choosing David. And then thirdly, the Lord showed his faithfulness in the building of Solomon's temple. In the building of Solomon's temple, verse 19. Nevertheless, he said to David, you shall not build the house. I know you want to build the house, David. You're not going to build my house, my temple. But your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. Now, during Israel's history, the Lord had never one time said, Hey, uh, why doesn't someone build me a house, a place for worship? He had the tabernacle, the tent they used all that time. He never said, why don't you guys build me a house? Never said that. Nor was he surprised when the request came up, when David thought about it. He wasn't surprised. Why? Because God knows all things. Didn't take him off guard or anything. And although David wanted to build a house for God, shows he has his heart for God, nevertheless, the Lord had other plans. And he had another man in mind. That, the Lord reserved that job for Solomon. Verse 19 is that promise. He said, your son, David, you're not going to do it, David, your son who's going to be born to you, is going to build the house. Now, that promise in verse 19 comes from, as we studied, 2 Samuel 7, the covenant with David. That's where the promise comes from. And that's where it was first originated. And so that had been promised already. And verse 20 is the fulfillment. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. That's what this whole thing's about, the faithfulness of God. He fulfilled his word, which he spoke. You know, sometimes the promises of God are not fulfilled right away many times is the case they, it takes a long time for them to be fulfilled that just seems to be how god works oftentimes david never saw the temple he died before the temple was built it was his dream it was his dream to build a temple for god he wanted it but he never even saw it and uh that doesn't mean that didn't mean that it wouldn't happen because god promised it would happen by the way that's where faith comes into play we believe the word of God, whether things happen or not immediately, whether they're fulfilled immediately or not, we believe what God has said and we take him by faith. Now, the Old Testament saints, you read, you've all read the, probably the famous chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, of all the, the Old Testament saints who are trusting God and, and his trusting in his faithfulness. And even though they did that, they didn't necessarily see the promises of God fulfilled in their lifetime, and yet they trusted him anyway. Hebrews eleven thirteen talking about those people of faith, it says this, all these, all these people, patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people, they died in faith uh, without receiving the promises. They never saw them fulfilled. Uh, Abraham never, never settled, for example, Abraham never settled in the promised land. He was aware of the promise. He heard the promise, Genesis 17. He knew about it. He never saw fulfilled as, as far as settling down in that land. But it says here, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's all they were, pilgrims on the earth, on the way to the celestial city, as Pilgrim's Progress says. And they're on their way and they're trusting God. And yet they can't see everything. As I said before, we walk, uh, we're in this life, it's like looking through a mirror dimly, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. And so they died in faith without seeing the promises realized. They didn't see those promises realized, but they believed God anyway. They trusted him anyway. They believed in his faithfulness, and God was faithful to them in their lifetimes. But the promises were fulfilled later on. You know, David had to live with the fact that his dream would never come true in his lifetime. He had to live with that. And he wanted so much to do this for the Lord. But he had this word from God. He had this word from God that said, Solomon is going to be involved in the fulfillment of this promise. Not you, David. I know you love me, I know you want to serve me, but you're not going to do, be the man for this job. So where does that leave David at? To grope around in discouragement and despair? No, David, what was David to do? He was to trust in the Lord's promise. Take God at his word. Walk by faith, not by sight. 
What can we do? When, as we read the scriptures and we look around the world and we, and we see such a disaster going on, what do we do? We trust God's word, right? We trust in his promises. Even though we don't see things happening fulfilled in front of our eyes, one day we know they will be fulfilled. We trust in his faithfulness. We know God is faithful. The Lord says he's coming again. It says it in the scriptures. He's coming again, again and again it says that. But people say, look how long it's been. He's not coming again. Why hasn't he come back already? The Apostle Peter brought up that argument in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. He says, know this first. He anticipated this happening. He probably heard it. Know this first, that, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Where's this promise? He, where's this coming he promised us? Where's it at? He said he was going to come back again. What's, what's happening here? He hasn't come back. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Life has never changed. The world's still the same. Nothing's happened at all. God says he's going to do this. I, I, I don't see it happening. What's the problem here? In effect, they're saying you can't count on the faithfulness of God. He's really unfaithful. You can't rely on what he said. Uh, why, why doesn't God intervene in the world? He said he was going to do this. Why doesn't he do it? He's never done anything, they would say. Now, how do you respond to that when people would say something like that? How do you respond? Well, the Bible teaches that God is faithful. He's faithful, and he's, all, and he's proven his faithfulness over the centuries. And we know because he has and because he says his, he's true to his word that he's going to fulfill his word concerning the second coming. He's coming back again regardless of what it looks like right now. And by the way, this all has to do with God's character. All has to do with his character. He is, his reputation is on the line. And God has a reputation for faithfulness. And because of this, because of his reputation for faithfulness, because of his character, uh, we know we can rely on his faithfulness. Now look, this whole section is highlighted by words like, in 1 Kings 8, highlighted by words like fulfilled and promised. Did you see those words as Stephen read it? Verse 15 says, uh, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who, has spoke with, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, has fulfilled it with his hand. I like that. Spoke with his mouth, fulfilled it with his hand. Fulfillment language there. Verse 20 uh, the Lord has fulfilled his word, again, in which, which he spoke. Verse 20 again, it says, as the Lord has promised, he's done what he promised. you got promises made, and, and then promises kept. You had the fulfillment of God's word. whole section is emphasizing God's faithfulness. And not surprisingly, the subject of God's faithfulness continues in the New Testament. It doesn't stop in the Old Testament. If you were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you can turn there if you want. 2 Corinthians 1. It says over there, it's a very interesting passage. You know, 2 Corinthians is a much-neglected book, um, different, different type of book, too, but 2 Corinthians 1, chapter 1. Paul wanted to visit the Corinthians. He wanted to visit them, and for some reason, he had a change of plans. I'm not sure what the reason was. He planned on visiting them, had a change of plans, something happened. Uh, and because that happened... Uh, he was accused by the Corinthians, some people at least in the Corinthian church, of being fickle and indecisive. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 17. Paul says, uh, well, look at verse 15. In this confidence I, attend, I intended at first to come to you, so you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you be helped on my, way to, my journey to Judea. In other words, when I go to Macedonia, I'm going to stop and see you guys. And after I leave Macedonia, I'm going to come back and see you guys again. We'll have, I'll make a second visit. And that was his plans. 
And something happened to where he couldn't do fulfill his plans like he wanted to. Verse 17, he says, Therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I propose, do I propose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not a fickle person. You know, I, he said he had fully planned on carrying out his plans of visiting the Corinthian church, as he said he would originally, but something came up that prevented him from going. Whatever it was, we don't know. And so Paul goes on and says in verse 18, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. In other words, Paul's saying, I don't constantly change my mind. I'm not saying yes on, on one minute, yes, I'm going to do this. And the next minute, I'm saying, no, I'm not going to do this. I've changed my mind. He doesn't do that. He's a reliable. Paul's always, we all know the Apostle Paul's reliable, as we re- read his word. He's not a fickle guy. This is his defense to saying that he was fickle. But when he says this, he says, as God is faithful, he's probably saying something to the effect, look, just as God is faithful, I want you to know also that I'm not fickle. I mean what I say, and I say what I mean. And that's how it is. That's his argument. But in, see, in seeking to understand Paul's argument here, don't overlook those words too quickly. As God is faithful. As God is faithful. What a great phrase to think about. God is faithful. And if we grasp that truth, just like Paul, if we grasp the truth that God is faithful and allow it to affect our lives, we too shall be faithful in all our endeavors, in all our relationships, in all that we do, because in all areas of life, because we are being transformed into his same image, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so we'll be faithful like God. The foundation and the motivation for our faithfulness is God's faithfulness. God's faithful. He wants us to be made, remade into his image, and therefore we would be faithful. And you see the faithfulness of God shining through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Again, it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which I just left, unfortunately. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 and 20. Look at those verses again. For the Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you is, uh, by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Um, Basically, he's saying that the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. We serve a faithful God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we think that that God is, 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 is fickle, then we're certainly, we have a problem. God's not a fickle. I mean, even if we are fickle, even if Paul was fickle and he's not, God is still faithful. And if we think that, that, he, that God doesn't, is fickle, we don't either, either we don't believe his word or we're expecting him to fulfill promises he never made to us. And I think a lot of people are doing that. Some people are disappointed because God doesn't fully live up to their expectations. I, I've seen this again and again. I, I tell you, I want to tell a story, but I'm not going to about this incident right here. I've held back on this several times. But so, so many times... People have felt that they expected God to live up to their expectations. They felt that God let them down in their life. I'm talking about so-called believers. Maybe they didn't get the job they wanted. They wanted a job, they didn't get it, and they felt like God let them down. Or in many other ways. Uh, because they have a standard they've set for God to meet. And if God doesn't meet it, then they're disappointed in God. It happens. I think it happens to a lot of us, maybe all of us at different times. Maybe all of us that sometimes have been disappointing to God of all things. It should never happen. Maybe people aren't prospering as they, sh- as they feel like they should. They should. 
They feel like I should be prospering now, financially or in other ways. But as I've said before, God never promised to prosper us financially. He did promise to meet our daily needs, right? Or give us our daily bread. That's all he promised us. He never promises a life without any trials. He did promise to be with us in the trials, however. So if we're expecting something that doesn't exist, it's not going to happen. Or we're expecting God to fulfill a promise he never made, it's not going to happen. And so whatever God does promise, he fulfills. He definitely will fulfill. He's a faithful God. What he says he's going to do. I love the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That tells it all. Now, even with all this talk about God's faithfulness coming out of the very mouth of Solomon, God, Solomon is talking about the faithfulness of God again and again in these verses. God's faithful, he says. There have been those who have criticized Solomon for drawing too much attention to himself as you read these commentaries and you're thinking, wow, people are really criticizing Solomon? Uh, for example, they say in verse 13, Solomon says, I have surely built you a lofty house. Critics say, wait a minute. Solomon's making an issue of himself here. He's saying he's the one that did all this. Uh, look at the great temple I built. Verse 20, he says, I have risen in place of my father David and built the house. Verse 21, I have set a place for the ark. These critics think that Solomon's bragging about his own accomplishments. That's what they say. But that's hardly the case. This is the context of which speak, Solomon is speaking and addressing the people in the context of God's faithfulness. He's talking about God's faithfulness, not bragging on himself. He's only saying, it's God that brought me to this place. It's God that allowed me to do this thing. This is fulfilling the promises of God. I'm part of this whole fulfillment process by the grace of God only. He's not bragging on himself. He's bragging on God. That's what he's doing. The same thing we should do, brag on the Lord. Solomon never intended to build a temple for himself. We talked about this again and again. We looked at it a few few weeks in a row. Never intended to build a temple for himself. Never intended to build it for his own glory. Uh, But... He built it, look at verse 20, it says he built it for the name of what? The name of the Lord, the God of Israel. That's why he did it. There's no reason to criticize Solomon in this at all. No selfish motive here, as we should never have a selfish motive. Now, it's true that many people laud their own accomplishments. You've heard them, maybe, but we've done it ourselves. Boasted about what we've done. And when we do that, we get all the glory, don't we? Some people would boast about their own salvation. If they could affect it themselves, they'd brag about they attained salvation. Which is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no man may boast. That no one may boast. Because I guarantee you, if we could affect our own salvation, we would be boasting. We'd be puffed up with pride. You've seen people who are thinking, thinking they've attained some level of spirituality who now feel like they're, they've risen up by pulling themselves up their own bootstraps. Puffed up with pride, but true believers will never do that. We will always give the glory to God for everything, just like Paul instructed in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 1, the last verse. Let him who boasts, boast where? In the Lord, right? If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Paul, Paul's talked about boasting, but he was boasting about what God had done. So whatever we do, understand this. It's because whatever, we, whatever good thing we do for the Lord, it's because the Lord has equipped us to do it. The Lord has enabled us to do it. The Lord has prepared us for this moment to do it. He's brought us along to the place. He's given us his grace. He saved us by his grace. And all glory goes to him, so we give him the praise. It's not that we've been faithful to him. It's that he's been faithful to us. That's the case. Solomon recognized that. Do you recognize that tonight? God is faithful. 
Secondly, let's look at the uniqueness of God, verses 22 to 26. Uniqueness of God, or we could call, call it the incomparability of God. Verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in, his presence, uh, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Uh, and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, <clears throat> there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand. There it is again, as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not like a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. Well, we we saw Solomon addressing the people in verses 14 and 21. He's speaking to them directly. Now, in verse 22, he begins to pray to the Lord publicly in front of everybody. He's praying to the Lord. By the way, that prayer is going to go all the way to verse 53. Well, it's kind of a long prayer and a model prayer, I might add, as well. He begins where he left off, addressing the people. He's talking about the faithfulness of God. He's standing before the, by the way, which says the altar of the Lord. He's standing before the altar of the Lord, the, uh, the uh, bronze altar in the outer court. If you went to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 13, that's the parallel passage of this. There's some additional information that says this. I'll read it for you. 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, comma, he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. So he, he builds this platform, in this case, in this, in the, on this day, and he stands to address people. Then he kneels to pray to God, and throughout this prayer, it's interesting, Solomon's the king of Israel. But throughout this prayer, he shows his submission to the Lord, doesn't he? You can see it in two ways. You can see it by his words, and you can see it by his posture. He's kneeling. Now, not there's different ways of praying in the Bible. Some people stand, sit, and, and kneel, and so on and so forth. But you can tell by his kneeling and his words, he is submitting to God as the king. Now, before you have the king of, of the land of Israel uh, praying before all the people, what a blessing to the nation to have this. Your leader... Is praying, is praying for everybody. He's a king. He's the king of the land, but he's looking to a higher king than himself. And that's the king of kings, right? What an example. He's pray, he shows his spiritual leadership by praying for the people. And the very first thing he says in this prayer is this. <clears throat> Verse uh, 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. No God like, like you. In other words, God is unique. He's in a class all by himself. No one is like him. No one can compare to him. All comparisons uh, with him fail. They pale into significance, insignificance before the God of, of heaven and earth. He's unique, truly unique. Now notice, first of all, he's unique in creation. There is no God like you in heaven or above or in earth beneath. Now back then, every nation had their own God. Well, Steve, people still have their own gods. Every nation had their own God or, or gods, several gods usually they claimed you know, you always read in history about the, you know, this nation had the God of war and the God of weather. You read about the God of fertility, and it goes on and on. Egypt had a million gods of all kinds, and they, there was a God just for about every reason there was, and for every occasion there was a God. But these were all gods they, they made with their own hands or thought up in their own mind. That's all they were. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. In other words, idols are just the work of men's hands. In 1 Corinthians 8, 5, he says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, even if there is, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, we exist for him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, we exist through him. In other words, what idol can compare to the living God? There is no comparison to him. It's only God. Now, there was a time in Israel's history where the Assyrian army was, had captured the western part of Judah and knocked down some of the cities there, and they were, set them on fire, and they were threatening. They got near Jerusalem, got to the gates of Jerusalem. They were threatening to overtake Jerusalem. And they're Second uh, Kings 18, and the, they, they address the people of Israel, the Assyrians do, and they tell them, don't trust the Lord, don't do that. And then they ask the question, Second Kings 18, they ask this question, has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? king of Assyria were some bad, the Assyrians were some bad people back then. They were pretty much destroying, they were rolling every nation. They were destroying everybody militarily, destroying people, doing horrendous things to people back then. It was true, they were d- victorious. And so they come to Jerusalem. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his hand, his land rather, from the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, they're claiming superior to God, superiority to God himself. Nobody can stop us. We go through a land. We take it over militarily. We are the military might of the world. Everybody knows it. Everybody's afraid of us. Not even God can stop us. How do you think the Lord responded to that? It says he wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Pharaoh made the same mistake. When Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh, they said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast for me in the wilderness. Pharaoh made the wrong answer in Exodus 5.2. He says, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. Well, Pharaoh, you're going to get acquainted with the Lord in short order. You're going to get very much acquainted with him, and you're going to wish you never knew him at all. And so, Pharaoh, by the way, Pharaoh thought of himself as a god. He was considered to be divine. He thought of himself as a great ruler, instead of everybody else. And, and yet he's nothing compared to the Lord, nothing at all. You know, look, there's, there's, no, there, 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 there's no so-called gods in heaven who can challenge the Lord. There are no men on earth powerful enough who can take on the Lord. There's no devil in hell who can stand up to our almighty God. It doesn't, doesn't, it's never going to happen. It's a losing effort because no one in creation is like God. He's unique in creation. He's also unique in his attributes, his character qualities. That's what we're talking about in this whole chapter. Again, there's two attributes that are spoken of here. Again, his faithfulness reiterated. We've already covered this, but Solomon continues his theme of faithfulness. Look at 1 Kings 8.22. There is no God like you in heaven or above or an earth beneath, keeping covenant. Keeping covenant. The Lord established a covenant with Israel. He wanted them to be his unique people, his peculiar people, unique people, serving a unique God. And yet, how many times did they break that covenant? Again and again. But God never broke the covenant. He never breaks it on his side of the, of the aisle. Verse 24 says the same thing. The Lord kept his promise to David. Who, who else in the universe keeps his word like God does? Nobody does. Verse 25 says David would always have a man to sit on his throne. However, there's a caveat here. 
He's got to obey the scriptures. He's got to obey, he's got to obey the Lord. He's got to obey the Lord. Now, without looking ahead, don't cheat and look ahead in your Bibles. And knowing man's frailty, do you think they will all keep God's word? We'll see that in the future. All of us have failed to keep his word, haven't we? Everybody's failed. We've let each other down. We've broken off uh, relationships that were established by a covenant. We have been unfaithful in many ways. All of us have done these things, but the Lord nevertheless always keeps his covenant, right? He keeps his side of the bargain. He upholds his side of the bargain every time. No one else can say that because he's unique. He's unique in his faithfulness. He's also unique in his loving kindness. Uh, And it says that there also in verse uh, 23. He's showing loving kindness to your servants, similar to the first point. By the way, we've talked about this last time. I'm not going to belabor the point. We talked about God's loving kindness, his loyal love to people. He's loving, he's kind, he's merciful, he's good. We know that he's faithful. No one else could, can attain to that loyal, that level of loyalty and love. And so we see he's unique in creation. He's unique in his attributes. And I want to add a third tonight. It's not in this particular passage. His son is also unique. The son of God is also unique. Again, the carryover uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament of God's uniqueness. Just about everybody here, or everybody who grew up in church, rather, I should say, has memorized which, which verse? John 3.16, right? I'll memorize that verse. And the older translations say it referred to Jesus as God's only begotten son. That's what it says, only begotten son. Nasby says the only begotten son. The phrase actually means, what the meaning of that phrase is, and is, it means his, his one and only son, his unique son, his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son. Now, that can be confirmed by Hebrews eleven seventeen. by the way. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You remember that? That great test in Genesis 22 offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Is that his only son? Well, he had another son called Ishmael at the time. This phrase, only begotten son, means his, his unique son. Isaac is a unique son. He's, there's no one else like Isaac. He occupied a special place. He was a son of promise. Hebrews 11, 18. In Isaac, your seed shall be called, the son of promise. <clears throat> now, the early heresy called Arianism, back in the 4th century, they said that Christ was, uh, was a... Uh, was created being. He was a created being, but we know that is a lie. He's the eternal son of God, and so he's unique. He's unique. Think about the uniqueness of Christ for a minute. He's unique in his virgin birth, in his birth because he's virgin born. Who else was born that way? I had a guy argue with me about that one time I was talking to, and he, he just couldn't, he couldn't grasp it. Well, he was an unbeliever, but nevertheless, the Bible teaches us he's unique in his, in his birth. He's unique in his teaching. He spoke with uh, authority. Remember, it says in the Gospels, he, didn't, he wasn't speaking like the rabbis. He was speaking with authority. And in John 6, it says, uh, John 6 or 7, it says, no one sp- ever spoke like this. People said, no one's ever spoken like this. It's so unique. And the, the disciples were amazed. His, his, he's unique in his power. His disciples were amazed because he calmed the storm and stilled the waves. He was unique in his death because his death satisfied the wrath of God against sinners. He's unique in his resurrection because he had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. He's unique in his ascension. Who else ascended like he did? Only a couple of guys that God took to heaven, but this was unique. He'll be unique in his second coming. He's unique because he alone provides salvation. No one can save except Christ. 
No other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. There's no one like Jesus. Now, at the end of the first section here in 1 Kings 8, Solomon asked the Lord to confirm his word. Look at 1 Kings 8, 26 again. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed with, you, with which you have spoken to your servant, my father, David. And he asked God to confirm his word. And, of course, it's a no-brainer. God always confirms his word. He always brings to pass what he says is going to happen. So as we look tonight at the, the faithfulness of God and the uniqueness of God, I want you to know we serve a great God tonight. Again, I want to say this. We serve a great God tonight. His presence is with us. His glory, as we saw in this chapter, is unfathomable. We can't even get our hands around it, can't even grasp it. His faithfulness extends to all generations. There's no one like God. Uh, he's one of a kind. Uh, he's in a class by himself. No one can compare to him. I love Isaiah 40. You get a chance Read Isaiah chapter 40 if you want to read about the incomparability of God. Isaiah 40, the Lord says, To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal? And the answer is no one. Knowing all these truths that, that, we, that we see in the Scripture should give us a greater appreciation for our God, right? Should great, give us a greater reverence for him, a greater love for him. Let me ask you a question tonight as we close. Are you trusting in our faithful, unique Savior tonight? Are you trusting in him? Do you trust him with your circumstances? I'm talking to myself as well. Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust his word? You know, many things in life trouble us. Many are the things that have talked to some of you about these things. We're troubled by many things, many problems in our country, uh, problems in our country right now that are troubling us, troubling me for that matter. There are many anxieties of all kinds uh, abounding that are ready to pounce on us and uh, disturb our peace in Christ. But we've got to remind ourselves of what? God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his character. Great is thy faithfulness as long as it's Lord unto me. Let's pray. Or again, as we look into your word, we're always amazed to, to, to study the things of God, study about the person of God. We pray tonight that we would realize who you are that we serve. We get caught up in circumstances and life, and the problems of the world. Help us to realize who you are tonight, a faithful, loving, unique God, and that we can trust you with our lives. We pray we would, Lord, knowing that your word is going to come to pass. Pray we would do that. We pray as we go forth this week, we would serve you, knowing that we serve a faithful, almighty God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.